Thanks for choosing this BJSM podcast. And I'm with Sam Blanchard. I think you're really going to enjoy it. He's an expert in kids. He's a physiotherapist at the University of Brighton. And he's got a lot of experience in working with kids through his four years at the Brighton Hove Albion Football Club Academy. And I was struck when he told me in our preparation that kids as young as eight years old were putting their names on pieces of paper and signing away to commit to Brighton Hove Albion. So, Sam, thanks for joining the call. Hi, Corinne. Thanks for having me. And uh, we're going to talk about the pathophysiology, like why bones are different, why kids are different, and then how that influences injury. So why don't you start off by just telling us why kids are different? I think it's it's important that we, we don't consider kids as many adults. Uh, if we if we had the ability to look at the same person but at a snapshot through time at different ages, 10, 13, 16, 19, we may as well be looking at completely different people. The 10-year-old compared to the 16-year-old is, is an alien. Um, anatomically, they're very different. And as a result, the, the stresses that we apply to their bodies will have very different consequences. Um, it's not to say that that kids don't get muscle injuries like adults do. They're still susceptible to that. But what we do see a difference in is the prevalence of injuries around that muscle tendon bone complex um, that that really stands out in kids. If we look at injury through ages and we apply the same traumatic mechanism of injury to a prepubescent kid compared to somebody who's going through puberty at the moment, we will see slightly different injuries, whereas the the prepubescent kid may um, injure the, the ligament or the tendon itself. During puberty, we tend to see more problems around the insertions of the ligament or the insertions of the tendon onto that bony attachment. And it's to do with the stability of that, that zone of uh, growth in the bone. So prepubescent athletes have a very stable continuum. So the, uh, the epiphyseal plate, uh, the cartilaginous head, um, and a tenderness attachment. So although it's soft and it's still prone to shearing injuries through that plate, the actual apophysis itself is, is okay, that's relatively sound. Where we start to see the problems is during puberty, and we have to remember that the onset of this will change for individuals. Um, we'll see the onset earlier in females than we will in males, but it's this time of development that we, we tend to see the, the cartilaginous head of bone begin to ossify, and it does so from the inside out, and not in a, a nice spherical way or an, an even pattern it tends to be quite irregular. Um, and it's all to do with the, the stress and the pressure that we apply to the bone, so your, your typical mechanistiogenesis. We start to see secondary and tertiary areas of bony growth that, that lip out of this primary zone and, and sort of dip into the epiphyseal plate, which, which now creates like an unstable continuum with a tenderness attachment. It's at this stage of development that we see these overuse injuries that, that people are familiar with, Severs disease, Osgood schlatters, where the presentations are quite similar to an adult tendon pathology, but the weakest link for a developing athlete is the bony attachment, whereas in an adult we might see a mid-tendon portion for example, uh, problem, for example. Matthew Saley, uh, Rod Whiteley, Amanda Johnson quite recently looked at Doppler ultrasound um, around the patella tendon complex in symptomatic young male athletes. And they found that at either end of the maturation scale, um, very skeletally immature end, 
and at the, the other end we've got the closed epiphysis end, we saw less pain and less dysfunction compared to that unstable period of growth in between those, those two zones. While we can't be exact with who will suffer from growth-related problems or at what age they will suffer from it, we do know roughly what areas of bone are more prone to these apophysitis injuries. So we'll see Sever's injuries in the, the much younger age groups. And then as they get a little bit older, we tend to see Osgood Slatter's becomes a bit more prevalent. Um, and then towards the end of the spectrum, the, the high teenage ends, we see hamstring apophysitis or adductor origin apophysitis. So we know that the, the last growth plates to fuse are your ischial tuberosity, um, the AIIS, the iliac crest, and the base of the fifth metatarsal. And in males, this could be as late as 21 years old. So even people that think they don't work with young athletes, they may actually be seeing these presentations in clinic. So it's important to, to remember these things. The difficulty we have is the, the management. If we, if we understand and accept that the, the presentation is similar to an adult, but the mechanism is very different, we, we really can't continue to load this zone in the same way because of that soft attachment which is prone to avulsion from the much stronger tendons and associated muscles. So in an adult where we may introduce a loading program, be that isometric or eccentrics, we can't do that with these young kids. We've got, um, we've got a conference running um, in October, which I think we're going to talk about later. But on this topic, we've got uh, a lady called Jenny Strickland, who is currently researching this area quite extensively. Um, and she's going to talk quite a lot about how we can manage this and, and where our understanding is. That is going to be a fantastic conference in October, and we'll put a link to the UK Physios in Sport with this podcast, Sam. Now, you've seen a lot of these injuries that you've outlined the anatomy of when you're working at Brighton Hove Albion. What sort of numbers are there in the literature? How big a problem is it? I think with our... With our knowledge of the literature, we've we've got a um, we've got a good understanding of um, injury incidents, but maybe not so much with uh, pathophysiology. So, um, very recently, I think it was a, a couple of months ago, um, Anders Freitag and some colleagues uh, published a systematic review in the BGSM, looking at injury incidents in children and adolescents in rugby union, and what we saw with the the younger age group, so that the 9s to 12s, for example, we saw a probability of injury around 9%, and this dramatically shot up to 98% in the under-18 age group. Now, we've got to remember it's a high-contact sport, and the demands of the game and training, for example, will increase with age. Um, so those under-9 to 12 age group probably aren't doing the full-contact training that the older counterparts are. But these figures do include non-contact injuries as well. Where we're limited with studies such as this is um, the, the, the data that goes into it. So, for example, um, this Rugby Union systematic review, we had 35 um, papers to look at, but only 17 of those were published after 1995 when the game turned professional. And with the game turning professional, what we saw was the training quality and the quantity would increase. Um, the, the players playing the game evolved with their physical capabilities and their presentation. And this would have filtered down slowly since the, from the top end down to the school end over a number of years. So the, the papers that sort of look at data beyond 95, oh, sorry, before 95, um, are going to give us very different outcomes to, to what we're starting to see now. 
I think what it does do is it shows us that our data is very limited um, and we still need to be investigating these things from an incident point of view but also we need to sort of mimic the literature within the adult population where we, we've got a good understanding of injuries and pathologies and the interventions that we can use to help reduce this risk in younger athletes. I think where we are seeing a good body of literature is from the strength and conditioning crowd. Um, and what we've got is that this evolution of the long-term athletic development model and the interpretations of the components of that. We know about the influence of certain training stimuli at different periods of skeletal development. Um, and so our understanding of the, the physiology relating to exercise and growth is pretty solid. But like I said, it's this injury incident that we're not seeing um, enough of. I know from personal experience working in football, I know a lot of clubs will collate injury audits um, over a season or over a number of seasons. And we're awaiting a publication from Andy Renshaw at Liverpool Football Club um, exactly on this topic, which I'm really excited about. I think it's going to be really insightful. And it's something that um, isn't widely published because clubs are quite secretive with that data. Where I previously worked, um, we recorded around 24% of injuries within the academy in one season as being non-contact related injuries. So these acute onsets, these, these sudden strains and sprains, for example. But the growth related injuries as well, we saw about 19.2% in one season. And in my mind, these two subsets of um, injury incidents are preventable injuries. What sort of things are you thinking will come out of that, just as a sneak preview? I think it's 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 going to be a lot um, stronger numbers than the ones I just quoted. I mean, I, I I used an example of one season. I think they've collated it over a number of years, and I know that Andy has been working with the Premier League um, and with UEFA. So I'm hoping to see um, a stronger uh, body of um, data that will come out, and in doing so, we might be able to to look at these these uh, preventable injuries, these non-contact overuse-related ones. Um, I think it's a contact game. Injuries are part and parcel of that, but it's going to be our interventions that, that's going to be key um, in reducing certain numbers of injuries. What do you think, you know, practical suggestions for our listeners, what should they be thinking about? Share your experience from Brighton Hove Albion to say, how can our, your academy experience help our listeners? I think injury prevention not just with kids but in general is quite a hot topic at the moment and you know a, a lot of the, the data coming out of the, the research coming out is looking at for example hamstring um, prevention in the adults so injury prevention in general is is um, taking a quite a popular uh, front in the, the literature at the moment um, personally I, I hold reservations over the term prevention um, I think uh, we're being quite arrogant if we can assume that we can actually prevent something happening. I think we're more likely to reduce the likelihood of something happening. Um, and I think that it sounds like semantics, and it, maybe it is, maybe it's just me being picky, but if, if we term it something differently to, to athletes and make it something more of a, a fluid, continuous process, if you're an athlete with a character chase and you think this is ongoing, then you're more likely to stick with something. So I think you know maybe something along the times of injury reduction you know maybe we may see better adherence to programs we're starting to understand the risk factors a lot more to injury now and again i, I go back to the adult um body of, of work that we know about um 
we know that the biggest risk factor to injury is previous injury. If we relate that to kids, they're more likely to have a clear slate on their medical history. So what have we got to work with there? We've got to then consider that the other risk factors will increase in likelihood as a result. If you look at Greg Myers' work, for example, with ACL injuries, um, he identified certain risk factors. Um, and I think the, the most popularised one is the, the knee valgus upon landing, um, which is discussed quite a lot. I think one key factor that they did highlight that maybe isn't talked about as much is actually the length of the lever involved in that. If you have a shorter person with less body mass and they undergo a significant range of knee valgus, they may actually be at less risk than a taller person undergoing a smaller range of valgus. And when we think of it like that, you tend to picture um, maybe a kid going through a growth spurt. And this could be an under-13 compared to his peer. You know, you could have a really tall under-13 compared to a really short under-13 year old player. Suddenly we see a, a change in that lever length with less proprioceptive awareness of their limbs um, because they're no longer controlling this shorter lever that their body's used to. The, the bone has grown and the soft tissue around it hasn't quite caught up yet. I think we have to be careful with injury screening as part of injury prevention. I think we have to remember that we're assessing someone at a snapshot in time. An injury screening alone doesn't account for a kid having a bad night's sleep, for example, or you know, even applying it to adults if, if they're arguing at home or something like that. You know, We've got all these external factors that if their head's not quite on it when we're screening them there and then, how can we expect them to produce a good test score? It also depends on the design of the screening that we're looking at. Are we testing what we think we're testing? So let's say, for example, um, uh, quite a commonly tested skill is the ability to hold a plank for a certain amount of time. If someone's bad at that, what does that actually tell us about their likelihood for injury? Or from a performance point of view, how good are they at holding off an opponent? And if they know that we're retesting this later on in the season and they just go away and practice the plank, well, they've just got better at that test. That doesn't necessarily tell us anything about their likelihood of injury. For that reason, I think injury prevention is and should be an ongoing process. So we look at things like wellness monitoring, mood questionnaires, um, GPS data if we're lucky enough to have that. Um, and there's a lot to be said for actually watching your athletes train. There is an argument that screening isn't all that's been sort of cracked up to be. What would be your take home on that? I mean, you've told us quite a bit about it, but just to recap, screening, good or bad? Um, good, because what else is there? And I think that's what people need to consider. It's It's got a place. Um, and like I said, it, it gives us information on, on players in a non-injured state. So what we then do is, as part of our rehab program, we've got markers to work towards. What we need to remember as well is that, like I said, it's, it's a snapshot in time. And if we're, if we're testing pre-season, for example, and then they get an injury and the rest of the squad continue to improve with their fitness or their technical ability, then does our pre-injured state measure up enough to put them back into training? Or do we then need to assess what the rest of the squad are up to? So I think until we can think of better, I think it definitely has a place but it, it forms a small cog in a big wheel of, of injury prevention. But then if I put the devil's advocate position, it'd be screenings all well then, but 
aren't the coaches just going to train the kids hard and do what they normally do and does it matter yeah I think you're right um, and and as you mentioned at the start you know we're specialising in sport a lot sooner um, we, we're taking on players in football around the age of 8 um, training loads are gradually increasing through that age group so um, and we're going to sort of see less diversification in sport and more specialisation um, I think where we need to be paying attention to, to the, uh, the literature at the moment is looking at the, the guys um, investigating cam lesions and femoracetabular impingement so your likes of Igor Tack, Rob Langhout Adam Weir, Ringy Agricola Phil Glasgow we're, we're investigating these potential impacts of this increased load especially around the age of about 12 to 13 um, where if we're doing repeated drills so external rotation and flexion of the hip for example um, with kicking a football we're promoting this this osteogenesis that I talked about earlier um, with the developing bone um, and we're, we're sort of laying down this tissue a lot more on the um, the areas of the femoral head which could be quite limiting later on in life and present as a cam lesion so this you know, argument between balancing up specialisation and um, trying to develop technique to create an elite athlete compared to diversification, I think brings into question the, the, the 10,000 hours that's being banded around as the magic number of minimum training time to create an elite athlete. I think some of this has been blown out of the water by GB Athletics, for example, who recruit athletes from other disciplines and turn them into gold medalists and we could really argue there you know is that diversification that's that's allowed them to do that i think the difficulty as physiotherapists working in sport is that if you're working with these young athletes the chances are you're with them because you're working within a certain sport so that could be football or rugby athletics or dance and therefore our hands are quite tied with achieving this diversification this is where we need to be quite clever and utilise our time with these athletes. Um, and this could be creating dedicated injury prevention clinics, quote unquote, um, where we work on movement patterns and, and these movement foundations that perhaps they're not exploring with this specialisation of their sport. We have to remember that they're kids um, and they just want to play and they really love unstructured sessions. So let's embrace that. I was really lucky at Brighton and Hove Albion to work with um, the head of coaching, Paul Holder, who's a mad scientist, basically. But he, what he did together with the medical team was um, dedicated time for the kids to just play. So we would um, put some games in like basketball or tennis or tag rugby, but also we just left a load of equipment out and told them to go and make up their own rules and create these bizarre games that, that kids come up with. And in doing so, we, we took them away from just repetitively kicking the ball. This allowed them to um, explore different ranges of movement, but it still allowed them to learn about really sport-specific stuff like evading an opponent or coordination and balance, so everything that is essential to development, but just moving away from football slightly. And it's in line with that theory of nonlinear pedagogy where you know you relate to motor learning, where you can provide a challenge for an athlete you don't necessarily have to break down that exact skill or movement execution. 
and instead you allow them to explore and be creative and and work the problems out for themselves. As sports medicine professionals, it may be quite difficult for us to actually run these sessions, but this is where our input with coaches can be um, quite key and beneficial. You know, explaining to them the the impacts of this diversification compared to specialisation. Yeah, and that's um, when they're not injured. What about when players are injured? Do you have a special focus? Absolutely, and I think um, you know this is one time where we do get that one-to-one contact with players, and this really has to be sold to the player as a window of opportunity. The injury's happened, done, deal with it. You know we can't change that, but what we can do now is um, be you know allow our rehab to be quite creative. And again, remember the population that we're working with, and they just want to they just want to play, and all they'll be doing is clawing at the door to get back out on the training ground. Um, so what we can do is disguise some of our activities as as playing and, and allow the, the rehab to, to come from that without the formalities of it being rehab. Thanks, Sam. I'm going to let you go there, and I'm going to remind our listeners that the UK Physios in Sport are running a conference focusing on the younger athlete in October, and the link for that is on our site. Thanks for listening to this BGSM podcast. You can listen to over 160 podcasts on the BGSM site as well as via our free app. Thanks for listening and have an active day.